In um, our experience as parents, we've learned that there are stages when kids lie, and you just expect it. Because something about child development, some of you know more about this than I do, but something about the way the brain grows and advances, at some point, a child's mind goes, hmm, I don't have to tell you what I actually just did. Um, or a child's mind goes, hey, I can like, make up something that didn't really happen, or I can, I can make up this story. And, and there's these moments where uh, we've experienced with our own kids, we'll be like, why in the world are they lying about everything just all of a sudden? And usually it's because, for us, it's been at about age like three, and then again at about age five. Uh, something about that development of the brain makes kids go, I don't really have to tell you anything that I just did. Um, Lying is a really interesting thing. Um, Our ability to create something that is not actually real, um, our ability to create something that did not actually happen, or to manipulate what in truth is really going on. Um, When I was in fourth grade at Reagan Magnet Elementary School in Odessa, Texas, my fourth grade teacher was named Miss Hicks. Miss Hicks went to my church. Don't go to church with your teacher. Um, our principal was named Miss Hart. Miss Hart also went to our church. Definitely don't go to church with your principal. Um, and one day I found myself in the office. I had done something wrong. I'm sure it was probably a misunderstanding. Um, I had done something wrong. And I sat there with my office referral waiting for Miss Hart to come back to her office. She was out for whatever reason. And so I just sat there and waited and waited and waited, and Miss Hart never came. And I noticed these two baskets. One basket said in, the other basket said out, and they were full of referrals. And I went, huh, I wonder what would happen if I put mine in that little basket that says out. I wonder if anybody would notice. And so I did. I slid it in there, and I walked out of the office, and I went back to class. And when I walked in, Miss Hicks asked, you know, did you speak with Miss Hart? I said, yes, yes, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Yes, I spoke with Miss Hart. I went back to my seat and sat down. I was like, nailed it, did it, got away with it. In like five minutes, I mean, it might not have even been five minutes. I mean, it was like right away. The little bell came on, you know, Miss Hicks, please send Corey Jones to the office. And I was like, no, it happened. Um, that was the one and only time I ever received licks from the principal. She had a big paddle in her office. She made me sign this little book. I don't know what the book was, but apparently it was bad. I had to sign the little book. And then she said, put your hands on that chair. And she took this paddle down off the wall. And I was like, wait a second, what's about to happen? And sure enough, here they came. Um, There's something about our brains that sometimes it sounds like it's going to be a whole lot easier to lie than it is to do right. It's easier to lie than it is to own up to. It's easier to lie than it is to live in reality. And this happens, obviously, on a really wide spectrum. We lie about small things, but then some of us live our entire lives pretending as if reality is not true. Um, And so lying really cuts to the heart of who we are as followers of Jesus. And in the new community that was forming in the book of Acts, lying, manipulating the truth, manipulating the reality that God was trying to bring forth into the world was fatal. It was fatal. Um, Ananias and Sapphira found this out. You, you probably know this story. This isn't really one that we teach at like VBS. Um, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should just tell kids more. When you lie, 
you fall over dead right away. Like, that's just what happens. Uh, may, maybe that would help. I don't know. Uh, but it's not really a story that we talk about a lot because it is fairly tragic. But it's not only tragic, but it's set right in the middle of this great momentum. Like something really amazing is happening and, and there's signs and miracles and wonders are being performed and all these really good and awesome things uh, people are experiencing through the power of the Holy Spirit and then all of a sudden these two people die within the community. And, and it's not just a death like a, a tragic loss, it's a death related to what's going on within the community itself. And so this was hard news. Uh, it's in Acts chapter 5, we'll read it together here. It's the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. There was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. And then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. And then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Um, this story comes shortly after Luke tells us that lots of people within this new community were selling their possessions and bringing the money from those possessions to give to the apostles and to the leaders of the community to disperse out as they needed. Uh, and so selling land, selling something that you owned of great value and then giving the proceeds to the apostles, that, that was becoming the norm. That was the thing that everybody was doing. They recognized that as our community grows, as thousands and thousands of people are added, we're going to need a way to take care of everybody. So people started just giving very generously. Um, and then here comes Ananias and Sapphira wanting to be part of that, but only kind of. You know, they, they want to be part of this really great thing that's going on, but only a little bit. Um, there's, there's still a piece of them that was not fully committed to what was happening. There's still a part of them that wasn't quite invested in what was going on. When we read this story, we usually ask, why did they die? You'll notice, I mean, if you read through and really look at the details of it, it never says that, like, God struck them dead. Um, it never says that uh, they were killed because they lied. It never says that they were killed because they withheld some of the money. In fact, Peter even says the land was yours to sell or not sell. Nobody was making you do this. You know, the money was yours to give or not give. Nobody was forcing you to give anything. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't have to lie about this. Uh, and so the reason that they died isn't necessarily given, but we imply a lot of reasons. Uh, probably our mind goes back to uh, the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 with Uzzah. Um, Uzzah, the fellow who was killed because he touched the ark. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah and, uh, to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. 
They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Um, touching the ark of God was a big no-no, right? This is, this is a holy thing. This is, uh, it, it's kind of like Mount Sinai when the people made their exit out of Egypt and they arrived at the mountain and God told Moses, uh, you can come up to the top of the mountain, but don't let anybody else even touch it. Don't let a, an animal from your livestock come up and even get close to the mountain because you'll be struck dead. So, so just stay away. Same thing with like the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer the, the sacrifice of atonement for the people. Uh, you may remember the stories that they tied a rope around their ankle just in case. Because if he fall over dead inside the Holy of Holies, no one can go in there to take his body out or else they will also fall over dead. So they all listen. And if there's a big thud, they start pulling on the rope because something didn't go well. Um, and so there are these things associated with God and with his presence and, and especially uh, surrounding the temple in which God was kind of a threat. Um, the presence of God had this, this dangerous holiness to it. You were in awe of it, you wanted to be part of it, but you couldn't get too close or else you'd die. And this was a way of distinguishing between the holiness of God and the unholiness of God's people. That God's holiness is something that is so powerful and overcoming that we can't even be in the presence of it. One of the things that Luke is doing with his story here is he's trying to explain, you are not only this new community, you are functioning as the new temple. You are the people of God at the intersection of heaven and earth because that was the function of the temple. You stand at the place where heaven and earth meet and that's who you are and what you do. And so if that's who you're going to be, holiness is paramount to who you are. Um, you, have to be able to, you have to be able to practice this ultimate uh, dangerous level of holiness. Um, I, th I think that's one helpful question. Why do they die? And most of the time, that's kind of how we read this story because we want to know how to not die, right? That's kind of the goal. Like, okay, looks like some people died in the Bible. Let's figure out how to avoid that. And so we read, uh, making sure that we don't do the same thing that Ananias and Sapphira did. But I think an even better question is not how did they die, but rather why did they lie? Like, they, they died because they told this lie, but why did they lie? I mean, like Peter said, this was yours to give or not give. This was yours to sell or not sell. Why did you even lie about this? Um, to talk about this, I would like to talk about Greek philosophy, um, as we always do. Uh, Greek philosophy obviously goes way back, and, and I'm just going to say from the beginning, I'm in way over my head talking about this, all right? So I'm going to share with you some of the things I know about Greek philosophy, and it's going to sound like I know what I'm talking about, uh, so we'll just go with that. Um, but uh, around 385 B.C., Plato wrote his book, The Republic. The Republic was basically his take on what it means uh, to live in a good and just society and what it means to be a good and just person. 
So around 385 BC, he wrote the Republic. Um, at the heart of the Republic is this Greek word, dikaiosene. Dikaiosene was the driving concept behind the Republic. Dikaiosene um, isn't really a word that we have like a one-word translation for. It's more a concept. It's about when the character of the inner life is as it should be. It's when you're aligned. It's when you fall into place. It's when the thing about a person that makes them really right or good is clicking on all cylinders. Dikaiosene is uh, that, that quality that lives within you that's not about what you do, it's about who you are. And this is what's required, according to Plato, to be a good and just person and to live in a good and just uh, society. So then around 384 BC, Aristotle, his protege, his protege was born, and Aristotle came on the scene and started kind of doing some stuff with this whole idea of goodness and what it means to be good. But he tweaked it a little bit. He went along with what Plato was saying, but he tweaked it a bit. And instead of uh, dikaiosene, he threw in his own word, arete. Uh, it kind of sounds like you need to start doing the robot when you say that word, but it's arete. Um, arete is about virtue. And so it's this slightly different concept. Arete is about doing the things that are necessary to show that you are a good and just person. Arete is about your actions, your choices. Arete is about your outward expressions that reveal your inwardness. Think of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is full of the concept of arete. Here's what it means to be a virtuous person. Obviously, both of these things are very good. Uh, we, we should strive for both of these things. Um, but there's one that shapes us, and I think one that we ought to be striving for. The idea of dikaiosene is about inside out. Um, it's about beginning with the transformation of who you are, this inner, uh, uh, this inner shift in you as a person that then wells up into the rest of your life. It's starting with the inside and working your way out rather than the opposite. Um, so a couple hundred years later, around 110 BC, this guy named Rabbi Hillel came along. Rabbi Hillel is a pretty famous dude in Jewish rabbinical culture. Um, that's his official title, pretty famous dude. I think that's what they all call him. Uh, but he, he came along around 110 BC. And he began to really interpret the Torah, the law of Moses, the teachings of Israel. He began to interpret the Torah according to dikaiosene. Um, how is the Torah shaping us into being good and just people inwardly? And that was his entire way of interpreting. Rabbi Hillel became this very powerful, strong voice among the Jewish people. Uh, not long after that, around 50 BC, came a guy, Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai did almost the exact same thing that Aristotle had done with Plato, whereas he came in and said, well, perhaps it's more about observing Jewish law. And in our observance of, of God's commands, that's how we become righteous. So we start with the exterior and work our way in. So again, neither one of these things is bad. Neither one of these things is necessarily even wrong. Um, but they shape how we see the world and how we see our place in it. They shape what matters to us, especially as followers of Jesus. Jesus came along sometime around like 7 BC. Um, and Jesus was all about dikaiosene. Um, Jesus... Uh, 
obviously, like all of his teachings, they definitely sided with the house of Rabbi Hillel, with his teachings, and this inward transformation. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. That's essentially what it means to be part of the kingdom of God and be fully invested within, not just without. The Sermon on the Mount is all about taking arete, your good actions, your good choices, all the right decisions you make, all of your really good obedience and the way that you follow all the rules that your parents gave you. Um, it's about taking arete and saying, yeah, but what's on the inside of you? Just because you're really good at following the rules, that doesn't mean that you have something good and alive living within you. You can follow the rules all day and be a total scumbag on the inside. And so that was Jesus' take. Um, you can observe ritual, you can observe all of your things all day long, but at the end of the day, if you're not uh, good and just and right, if you're not aligned, if you're not balanced, if you're not uh, something on the inside that you profess to be on the outside, then it's all a waste of time. This was his big criticism toward the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious people who heaped burden after burden upon people who wouldn't follow every little rule. And so Jesus was all over dikaiosene. Um, and so then this new community comes along shortly after Jesus' ascension. The new community came along and essentially asked themselves, what does it mean to live this out in real time? Because for thousands of years, the Jewish people were all about observing their ritual. And by observing the ritual, that, that distinguished them. But they were asking a different question. How do we distinguish ourselves by who we are on the inside? What does that look like? And so the story of Ananias and Sapphira is a cautionary tale, but it's about more than just lying. It's about recognizing that life in the kingdom of God is about more than just going through a prescribed set of motions. Life in the kingdom of God is about more than just outward expressions of faith that have no bearing on your soul, on your heart, or on your mind. Um, Ananias and Sapphira lied because they were under the impression that it was okay to just get a little bit invested in the kingdom of God. They lied because while they were really excited about this new community and wanted to be part of what was going on, they were only willing to go so far with it. And yet they wanted to reap all of the benefits of what comes from somebody who is an all-out follower of Jesus. Um, this weekend is 4th of July. And uh, my, I, I hope that you're celebrating well. I hope that you're celebrating safely. Um, this is always such a weird thing for our family. We're like, do we want to go do fireworks? Um, obviously, we're not trusting any of our children with them, but, you know, we're, we're going to go out and, like, watch them somewhere, or, you know, do, do we even want to trust them uh, out among exploding things? Um, we get plenty of that at home. Um, and so, so, I don't know, it's always kind of a weird thing, but um, I hope that you're celebrating safely and, and with a lot of excitement and joy with, with people that you love. Um, the United States is an interesting place. Because if you ask 100 people what it means to be an American, you get 100 different answers. Uh, we have no standard language, we have no standard ethnicity, we have no standard religion, we have no standard race. Um, and so we're, we're kind of just this whole little hodgepodge of, of people and of backgrounds and of thoughts and of worldviews. And, and that's, that's a big part of um, what makes America kind of a cool place to live in. Um, can I give my, my awkward July 4th speech? I, I think we have to be really careful to not mix our nationalism with our faith. Um, and on the other side of that coin, we have to be really careful to not say, uh, you can't like America. You know, if you like America, you're going to burn in hell because Jesus hates you. And like, we, we have to be careful 
from that perspective too. But there's a way in which um, how we see the world, how we see what makes someone virtuous, how we see what makes a, a society or a nation a virtuous society or a nation, there's a way in which that translates over into our faith. And we go, oh, this must be how God is too. Anybody who's ever gone to another country, especially if you've gone on like a mission trip or if you've gone to, to participate in something with other Christians and other nations, usually that's kind of a wake up and you go, oh, God loves lots of people. You know, uh, I, I, I don't get like a front of the line pass because I'm an American. Like they love God and I love God and God's this thing that goes way beyond any nation's borders or any, uh, any, any walls that we erect between ourselves and other people based on ethnicity, based on race, based on background. Uh, God supersedes all of that. And when we have our eyes open to it, it becomes fairly obvious and, and fairly clear that, that God is not an American, uh, and God's not part of any nation in the world. God is God, and, and God's uh, kingdom pours out in many different ways and in many different expressions into all places in the world. And so I think it is really important to, to acknowledge that and to celebrate that, to celebrate that uh, we follow this God who uh, does not choose us, who does not call us, who does not give us grace based on where we live, but based on who we are, based on who he is. As we sang earlier, you're a good father and that's who you are, and I'm loved by you and that's who I am. And, and that's how God uh, shows us his grace and his compassion. And so on, on weekends like these, sometimes those lines can get blurred, and I feel like it's usually important to acknowledge uh, that we need not blur those lines. Um, in the United States, we're a culture that largely values arete. Um, we value measurable virtues that can show, hey, because I do these things, um, I'm a, a good and just and right person. And again, that's not a bad thing. Um, but Jesus invites us into something deeper. Um, Jesus invites us not just to show on the surface how good of a person you are based on your actions. He invites you into something deeper and much more transformative. Um, here's what I want to say is what I would believe to be Luke's point with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And usually I'm kind of reluctant to say here's what it means, but uh, if I had to guess, this is what I think the story of Ananias and Sapphira means. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the glory that came with being part of a movement that was changing the world, yet they wanted to give only a small part of themselves to it. Um, I think that's us. The reason that I think we need to really understand the story of Ananias and Sapphira is not just because we ought not lie, which that is true, you should not lie, but we should not be people who go, I believe to the kingdom of God to be so big and so amazing and so wonderful, but I'm only going to give a part of myself to it. Um, I believe the kingdom of God is capable of transforming lives. I believe the kingdom of God is capable of, of, of transforming violence. We had a, a massive shooting yesterday in Little Rock. And, and when we believe fully in the kingdom of God, we go, I believe the kingdom of God is capable of doing something about that. I believe the kingdom of God is capable of ending violence. I believe the kingdom of God is capable of bridging gaps between people who hate each other. But yet, it often requires an investment we're not willing to give. And we go, yes, it's capable of that, but I'm not quite willing to give my full self to it. 
And so the cautionary tale of Ananias and Sapphira goes beyond just lying. It's asking you, how much of yourself are you giving? How much of yourself are you offering into the kingdom of God? Because if you believe it's true, if you believe that being part of the the community of believers, if you believe that being part of, of what God is doing through Jesus and through resurrection and especially through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you believe all of those things to be true, how much of yourself are you investing in that? Um, it's really easy to get stuck on things like social media, uh, and we make a habit out of like being angry about all the right things and, and saying all the right things and calling out for justice and saying, you know, we, we ought to be people who really do this, but then our life reflects nothing of it. Um, and, and in the culture that we live in especially, it's easy to gauge our arete based on what we say on social media. Um, don't be lazy. Don't let your comments on social media be the only investment you make into the kingdom of God. Don't think that just because you said the right thing or or denounced the right thing or supported the right person that you've done your work and now your job in the kingdom is over. That's lazy. Invest more than that. Give more of yourself than that. Um, Whenever we claim to want to help the poor and yet we sit comfortably in our own homes, when we claim to want justice, yet we only speak up in ways that don't actually cost us anything, when we claim to want the marginalized to be welcomed, and yet we are mostly unwilling uh, to interrupt our own lives to build necessary relationships with people. This is when we look more and more like Ananias and Sapphira than just when we lie. We're more like Ananias and Sapphira when we're pretending that our investment in the kingdom is more than it actually is. So how invested are you? Like, does your your level of involvement in making the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, does it match what you believe the kingdom to be capable of doing? Um, are, Are you telling the truth of what you believe the kingdom to be with the way you go about living your life? Or have you twisted it and manipulated it and said, no, it's actually only about this big because that's only what I'm willing to invest. And the great thing about uh, investing yourself in the kingdom of God is that it looks different for every person. Um, the, the, the things that you feel compelled to do, the things that just really uh, just burn you up and you're like, man, somebody has to do something about that. You're somebody, right? That's you. Perhaps this, this fire has been lit within you because God goes, I know you and I know what gets you fired up. So, hey, look, here's a way that you can invest yourself in the kingdom and in what's going on. So uh, it, it's kind of easy to play the comparison game and be like, oh, I don't do what that guy does. That's fine. You shouldn't be. You should be doing what God's invited you to do. Contribute your part. Contribute your possessions. Contribute what you have to the kingdom of God. And more than anything else, let's not be people who pretend. Um, Let's be people who allow disruption into our lives. Let's be people who give everything that God asks us to give so that the kingdom might be fully alive on earth as it is in heaven. Let's be people who value inward transformation over outward religious expressions. Not not to uh, ever eliminate outward religious expression, but to let it be informed by who we are inwardly rather than a legalistic obligation outwardly. Let's be people who trust the way of Jesus, 
the way of laying down our lives, the way of turning the other cheek, the way of inclusive love and generous grace, the way of sitting at tables with disreputable souls rejected by society, the way of holding up and fighting for life in all of its forms. Let's be people completely and entirely and unquestioningly transformed by the love of God that's poured out into our world through Jesus. Um, Stand with me and let let me pray over us. And we're going to have one more song. We don't want to, to lie to you or to ourselves or to the world around us, Father, about what we believe you're capable of doing. And so uh, convict us and challenge us with stories like Ananias and Sapphira where we say uh, we want to wholeheartedly invest in the kingdom to the extent that we believe the kingdom is capable of changing the world. And so uh, let that be our prayer this week and let that be uh, how we go about living our lives. Push us just a little bit further. Push us just a little bit more. Uh, Uh, to invest a little bit deeper into your kingdom and into your work. And it's through the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.